seek God in the midst of this and allow his love and his faithfulness to you to empower your endurance in the midst of this and your steadfastness such that it changes the way that you see the trial and the disequilibrium. Instead of something to be avoided, it is an opportunity that God promises to use for your good and your growth. When our post-everything world has turned life upside down, how do you even know which end is up? If you're committed to a community or a cause greater than yourself, you don't have the luxury of checking out or the freedom to burn out. It's not enough to just keep surviving. We need to thrive again. This is Post Everything. A podcast about remapping culture and rethinking leadership in a liminal age. Welcome to Post Everything, a podcast about remapping culture and rethinking leadership in a liminal age. My name is John Homus, and I am here with my co-host, Brad Edwards. Hey, Brad. Hey, man. How's it going? Good, good. I am excited about today. Uh, We have spent the last three episodes focusing on that idea of remapping culture. Where the heck are we as a culture, and where are we going? We've defined what it means to live in a liminal space, a liminal age where everything's constantly changing. And we've tried to put some handholds out there for people so that they can navigate their way through our ever-changing culture. But today, we're going to begin thinking or rethinking leadership. And that doesn't mean we're starting at scratch. That means rather that we're responding to the reality of the moment we live in where everything is always changing. And so today we're going to be looking at principles of adaptive leadership. And we think that we're going to take about three episodes to really unpack adaptive leadership. Now, I read a great book several years ago by a guy named Todd Bolsinger, and he's a pastor, I believe, out in California, and he wrote this book called Canoeing the Mountains. And when we talk about adaptive leadership, his whole framework for this book is really helpful in explaining that. He talks about how Lewis and Clark uh, took some rivers west, hoping that they could use these rivers to continue to explore all the way to the western United States. But they had a big problem along the way, and that problem was called the Rocky Mountains. And all of a sudden, their challenge became, we have these canoes, and we know how to canoe, but canoes do not work at the mountain, do they? Brad, you, <laughs> nope. you would right? Well, I mean, I resonate with it, but we took a different approach. And once we, you know, hit the mountains, we just stopped and decided to plant a church instead of keep going, I guess. So (laughs) they are barrier, but they're quite beautiful as well. So (laughs) yeah. And I guess you can, you can whitewater raft down them. You just can't go up them with a canoe. I mean, that's why you have a ski lift. So it works. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that illustration is helpful because what do you do? You can imagine Lewis and Clark being there at that mountain and having to get these people through And the thing they thought that was going to get them through, these canoes, just doesn't work. In fact, it's irrelevant. Not only that, it's burdensome. It's actually going to keep them from moving forward. So adaptive leadership is not just getting people somewhere, but helping them become the type of people who can get through roadblocks Mm. and go somewhere. Now, that's one great book, Canoeing the Mountains by Todd Bolsinger. But Brad's going to kind of take the lead today. Because Brad has really unpacked a book that has helped him and I think can help us as we talk about rethinking leadership in this liminal age. Yeah. So it's funny, that illustration and analogy that you 
were telling me about before we even hit record on this, John, like reminded me especially of the Murphy's Law. If you're familiar with Murphy's Law, which is that, you know, any bad thing that can happen will. But there's one particular that I love that is no plan survives first contact with the enemy and (laughs) no good idea survives the pandemic's changes and the forced change that happened wow. because of that right and so talk about rocky mountains exactly yeah to extend the analogy that can be the pandemic specifically but also it more generally conceptually the experience of living life in a liminal age that we just got done talking about is the rocky mountains that any leader i don't care what size team or organization or nonprofit or church or even your own family leading yourself if you've ever seen the rocky mountains they're kind of intimidating and mm. you feel incredibly small in the face of something as significant as living through and in a state of constant flux. Like we talked about how in the world do you plan for the future when you have no idea what's going to happen next month, never mind a year or two from now, never mind a five or a 10 year plan. Like, doesn't that sound exactly cute now? And so what we need then in this liminal age is a different way, not necessarily a new way. It can be an old way that we're resurrecting or rediscovering, but a different way of seeing and leading than we have. And that different way of seeing and leading has to, if you're a leader, it has to move the mission forward in some way. You know, it may be at a slower pace and come in a different way, but it's still the whole reason you're leading, right? It has to be able to flex and adapt to change. And it also has to develop and grow people who themselves are looking at those Rocky Mountains and feeling really intimidated by them and wondering how in the world can we get through this? Never mind, see the mission progress in any kind of a way other than what we've been imagining and working toward this whole time. And so there are a lot of leadership frameworks and paradigms out there. We're not saying that this one is the best one. We've just found it to be particularly good that I've used time and time again. And is also upstream enough of a lot of the different other approaches to leadership. There's a lot of stuff that can plug and play into this one and support it or fill it out in different ways that is really, really helpful. And so, yeah, John, like you said, this book that I want to kind of walk us through that is so helpful is a phenomenal book called Leadership on the Line. It has a sequel called Adaptive Leadership, which is also good. But this one is particularly good because it talks especially about how leading adaptively is hard and dangerous and you're not going to get out of it fully unscathed. Okay. Oh, scary. Scary. Yeah, it's scary. Absolutely. Uh, especially when you're in a limited age like this. It's written by Ronald A. Heifetz and Martin Linsky. They are professors at an Ivy League institution at Harvard. It's published by Harvard Business Review. Man, if you're in the corporate world of all, you're probably pretty familiar with this, but we're going to be connecting this to this liminal age in ways that I think will be really helpful and fresh. I was first introduced to this book. I got the opportunity to do the Redeemer City to City Fall Church Planter Intensive, which was a month long in New York. And one of those days we got the incredible teaching and leadership of Catherine Alsdorf, who she founded the Redeemer Center for Faith and Work. And she said, if there's one book she could get every pastor in the world to read, outside of scripture, obviously, it would be this one. And I echo her on that right now, actually. I mean, and that was, gosh, that was seven years ago. So this has been an incredibly helpful book. And their thesis is this. Okay, so this is your big picture, main point. But the single greatest reason for leadership failure, not talking about like a moral implosion or something like that, like a character failure or integrity failure, but just like what you're trying to do not working, the biggest challenge and reason for failure is a failure to distinguish between what they call technical problems versus adaptive challenges. Interesting. Okay. Technical problems versus adaptive challenges. So let me 
kind of break this out. Yeah, break it down for us. A technical problem is something that requires you to apply existing or known solutions. For example, with your canoeing the mountains illustration, a river, you have a canoe, you don't have to build one, you don't have to know how to build one, you have it with you, and all you got to do is put it down, right? It doesn't require you to learn or change. The people who do the work there are the authorities, right? So the people who are in authority, this is the planning. They planned ahead of the trip and now they have the canoes. It's not necessarily going to help them get over the mountains, but it gets them through the rivers, right? So, John, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I've seen articles that examine how people deal with problems and the effects of vision for the future. And like one thing comes to mind, you might think of like, someone who has high cholesterol and the doctor says, here's your solution. Take this pill. Mm, and yeah. the person who has a high cholesterol doesn't really have to do anything besides go to the pharmacy, get the pill, come home, put it in their mouth once a day and swallow. The uh -huh. doctor is the authority. He has the skill. You are just implementing a technical solution to a problem. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's perfect. Yeah. Cause you know, the doctor is the one that is identifying what the problem and the solution is. So they're literally prescribing it and just generally prescribing it. And it doesn't require anything more from you except to just do something that you already have the competency for. Great. So that's technical adaptive. The work is different. The work of adaptive challenge is going to require a different way of doing something, right? It's going to require a different way of seeing or thinking or behaving. It's going to require you to learn something. And it's going to be really unfamiliar terrain that you are navigating through. And I think we can all really identify with the pandemic. John, it's kind of embarrassing right now. But like, I remember in the very early stages, seeing this video of speaking of doctors, a doctor describing how you should disinfect your fruit and vegetables when you get bring it home from the grocery store. I watched and that video, Brad. I know, but you didn't retweet it like I did. <laughs> so hey, you were just trying to help people. I know. I was just trying to help people. I was like, <laughs> I know how to disinfect things. This is great. See, that's a good example of a technical solution applied to an adaptive problem that didn't work. It actually turns out a terrible idea because even an orange will absorb whatever disinfectant chemical you're, <laughs> you're using on it, and then you will eat that disinfectant chemical. It's not recommended. And I was an idiot, but that's what high stress does to you. Um, exactly. Didn't think that one through. So it requires a different way of seeing, thinking, and behaving. The person who does the work is not the authority. It's actually the person with the problem, right? Yeah. Because the person with the problem is the one that it requires the change of. Yeah. So back to the whole person who has high cholesterol, you're saying that the technical solution could be the pill, mm -hmm. but the adaptive solution is that person with high cholesterol becoming a different kind of person. So, yes. So they can't just shove a pill down their mouth. I mean, of course that helps, but they have to go, what kind of person do I want to be here? Do I want to be a healthy person? Well, if so, I have to adapt. Mm -hmm. I have to eat nutritiously. I have to exercise the pill is only going to go so far. I have to yes. actually adapt to a new way of living. Absolutely. And, you know, one more extension of that analogy with the doctor and getting healthy and everything is like you buying a Peloton is a technical solution, but actually 
prioritizing and working and moving into your schedule the time to use the Peloton and actually work out, that is an adaptive solution, hmm. right? And so what that helps illustrate also is that there are very few problems, if any actually, that are only one or the other. It, sometimes you might find that there's something just a technical, but there's no such thing as just an adaptive solution because it still requires you to bring in some kind of technical support so the adaptive solution can happen. Yeah. And so it's always a hybrid, but not understanding in which direction the change is required and how to do it and in what order that failure to distinguish is hard. Okay. And the primary reason it's hard <laughs> is that all of us are going to prefer a technical solution. Yeah. Like given the opportunity, sure. if you're like, would you rather take a pill or feel stupid riding a Peloton to really bad self-help preaching, basically, the gospel of Peloton and the trainers on there, right? I would rather just take the pill. It's also cheaper for the most part. If I have expectations of the fruit of a technical and adaptive solution combined, but I'm only doing the technical one, I'm going to be repeatedly discouraged and disappointed, right? Absolutely, absolutely. I not only understand that, I feel that. <laughs> I'm looking at my own leadership you know, starting an organization, which both of us has done and starting a church plant or just leading people. I mean, one of the things that I've constantly felt is I don't mind doing hard things, but I hate when there's like six steps behind the hard thing that you have to do. Mm. And that's the difference between like, I just want to apply a technical solution versus the adaptive change surrounding that technical solution. So I feel what you're saying. Absolutely. When that technical solution fails to solve the adaptive challenge that you're hoping it does, it's only going to increase the level of stress and disequilibrium that you're experiencing. Mm. It's only going to compound and add to the liminality of the liminal age we're in, right? You're going to feel even more disoriented. So let me put this together in an example. I know we have probably a lot of pastors and at least Christians who listen to this. The entire small group approach to ministry, like whether you call it a small group, a community group, or what have you. John, I don't know if you had this experience that I did, but like my first job out of seminary was as an assistant pastor of spiritual formation. And mm -hmm. what that means is in the church that I was at at the time, and what it typically means is like you are in charge of running the small group ministry for this church. And every small group leader and every small group wants in that small group to talk about and read together a Christian book on a given topic that helps them solve the problem that that topic is addressing, whether it's a Christian understanding of marriage and maybe the meaning of marriage by Tim Keller, even like they're good books. But what so often happens is there's a lot of initial excitement, right, about the group and what they're going to be doing. And you read the book. And as you go, there's always this tipping point where you start to realize it's not providing the satisfaction that you'd hoped it would. Your marriage mm. is still hard and you have the solutions in your head and you actually know what the right answer is, but you choose not to repent when you screw up and you say that dumb thing to your wife or you are frustrated and you lose your patience. We have this kind of idea that spiritual transformation happens if I just imbibe enough information. Yeah. That is a technical solution for what is a technical and adaptive problem. Now, if you start a small group where you're like, we are going to read daily as a group through the book of Leviticus, and we're going to talk about it, 
and how the Day of Atonement connects to Jesus. You might have a few nerds that are excited about that, but let me tell you, you're not going to have near as many people sign up for it. <laughs> right? Why it, is that, Brad? It requires more of us. Yeah. It requires the person with the problem to change and to see mm. differently and to prioritize that work. Now, there are some things that can be done to bring in the technical support to make that adaptive change easier. Like that's the job of a good leader, but there's no way that you can do that to such a degree that it doesn't require the change from you, right? You know, it's, it's kind of a crude connection here, but like you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. Too many times we promise that if we lead you to water, you won't be thirsty anymore. You don't have to drink. It's okay. Yeah. And that's where discouragement and disenfranchisement comes in. That's why there's a lot of huge problems in trust of institutions in the church right now. We've been over-promising and under-delivering for this particular and specific reason in a lot of ways, even apart from the kind of leadership failures that are like character and integrity issues that yeah. are its own category, right? Interesting. Huh. And part of this, to connect this back to the liminal culture and remapping that we have been doing so far, right, is... That might have actually been possible, this kind of small group approach. To say it's not working now does not mean it didn't work then. That's not what I'm trying to say. It might have worked then, but we'd lived in a different cultural landscape where there was a high value and priority of church involvement. You didn't have to persuade people that that was a good thing for you. In that time, we were able to assume that small group members would pursue each other between meetings. That's not a safe assumption anymore. Yeah. We knew that most people who were signing up for these small groups had a gospel-shaped hermeneutic, right, instead of being primarily shaped by social media or cable news. None of these things are safe to assume anymore because, again, we live in a different cultural and spiritual landscape. We're trying to canoe the Rocky Mountains. <laughs> yeah, that, that metaphor works. That'll carry. Yeah, yeah. You can't overextend it, at least not so far. Right. Well, okay. So we've talked a little bit about this, about the difference between implementing technical and adaptive solutions. And it's not one or the other. It's definitely both, but you have to know mm. the difference. As the yep. book says, the main issue in leadership is thinking that a technical solution will fix a problem that needs an adaptive one. Mm -hmm. So that then puts the weight on discerning the difference and knowing which one we need to apply. How do we know when and how to implement a technical versus adaptive solution? And we find the answer in the difference between being a fixer as a leader mm. versus being a transformational leader. So fixing something mm. versus helping people become the kind of people they need to be or leading versus managing and facilitating. So, you know, as you've shared some of the stuff from this book with me, they have a term that sounds really fancy. Mm -hmm. And it's called the productive zone of disequilibrium. It sounds like something from a science fiction movie, but it's not. It does. The productive zone of disequilibrium. So let me see if I got this right, Brad. The theory here behind this is that there is a level of change that people can take naturally, but there's a tolerance limit at the top of that. So if you picture, if you picture, you know, an axis going horizontally, there's only so much stress and change that people can take before they'll snap and they're just in recovery mode. 
that's a real helpful summary. And this is a little bit tougher to explain in the podcast format and medium because it involves a graph. And so we'll do our best to kind of describe this. But if there's an X and Y axis with the X left and right axis being one of time, there's a Y axis of disequilibrium. So as disequilibrium increases, you go up over time. On this graph, they have these dotted lines that are horizontal in parallel with the time x-axis. And so there's this band from left to right across the graph. And in that band, the upper limit is the limit of tolerance and the lower boundary of the band is the threshold of learning. And so what the authors are saying is that growth happens when we stay in that narrow band. If our disequilibrium increases too much, past this limit of tolerance, we are not physiologically able to make much, if any, adaptive change. Because we're laying on the floor in the fetal position. Exactly. So when we're talking about the last few weeks about the loss of capacity, emotional capacity. Great connection. Those are symptoms of crossing above that limit of tolerance. Okay. And so when that happens especially like if it's more than just a hair above it, your line is going to arc downward, like on the back end, on the right side of a bell curve. Below though, you're going to go through the productive range of distress and come down into below that threshold of learning. And so you are basically at that point in recovery mode. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. The problem is, and the real challenge is, is it is always harder like the further down into that you go and the longer you stay there, the harder it is to accept an increase in disequilibrium bringing you back into the productive range of distress. And there's, yeah. it's always a fine line. And it is hard to know because the symptoms, the experience and the feeling of being in crisis and above that limit of tolerance, as well as being in a kind of stress avoidance posture below the threshold of learning, it feels, sounds and looks extremely similar. Interesting. I can't help but think of the imagery since we said if you go above the limit of tolerance is like laying on the floor in the fetal position. When you come below that threshold of learning, you're usually in recovery mode. It's like it's a little bit like I've got to binge watch Netflix here yeah. for the next six hours. Both places you're stationary, but in neither place you're actually in the productive zone of equilibrium. That place where you're actually active in learning and adjusting and adapting. When you just described that experience, I thought immediately to like what my wife and I gravitate towards as soon as our kids are in bed, right? <laughs> because we have a just turned six-year-old boy and a 16-month, seven, almost 17-month-old boy. And if you have kids or have had kids in that age, you know that dinner and bedtime takes every bit of the two-hour window you have and saps more strength from you than the nine-hour day you just got done working. Yeah. And so you want to just, just binge watch Netflix. And Hannah and I have been trying to watch the Willow series that just came out, and it is really even more unsatisfying than binge watching something else because it just is terrible, but that's a different podcast. <laughs> However, there are some things that we can do, technically speaking, to bring us down below that limit of tolerance by the time they get to bed. We can have their clothes laid out. We can, for lack of a better term, bribe my six-year-old into listening and not having to nag him to get ready for bed by telling him how fast you get ready for bed 
will result with either one or three books we can read before you go to bed, right? By incentivizing them, that's a technical solution that brings our disequilibrium, keeps it below that limit of tolerance so that we can actually have a conversation about scheduling something. I don't know. Life. Something crazy. <laughs> yeah, just the basic stuff of life yeah. instead of feeling like I got nothing left. So this is a great example of how that all kind of works together. So John, I was telling you that I just led our staff team through these concepts yesterday. And we were talking about how do we use this to plot both our church as a whole, as well as each staff member's individual kind of ministry teams and volunteers or the people that they're leading. And one of the things that we talked about is like, you know what? It doesn't feel all that different, but we kind of have a hunch that about a year ago, which is shortly after we regathered for in-person weekly worship, about a year ago, 75% of our people were probably above that limit of tolerance. And 25% of our people were below the threshold of learning in a work avoidance, stress avoidance posture. Now it's probably flipped. It's hmm. probably only like 25% who are in crisis and 75% who are in a recovery mode and maybe probably need to start coming back up. So our conversation, like how we implemented this was to have the conversation of like, okay, the big thing that we need right now in order to bring the church back up into a productive range of distress and adaptive growth, we really need a second pastor of spiritual formation, right? Hmm. And we've been in a hiring process for that since August. And so we're doing that, but there's no way that that person at the earliest is going to get here before June 1st. Okay. That person's going to be able to provide a lot of the adaptive leadership we need. What are the technical supports and kind of soil tilling that we can do to prepare our people for that and to encourage them toward that productive range of distress. People feel lonely and isolated. That's one of the reasons that they're still trying to stay below that threshold of learning. So, okay, how do we provide more opportunities for people to connect in ways that are as easy as they possibly can be in a world where now we are trying to do the same things we were doing before the pandemic, but with a fraction of the capacity? How do we work smart, not hard, right? And so I say all this just because like this is such a helpful tool to not just know what to do, but also to bring your people along in the why we're focusing on this area instead of saying like, hey, we all need to go read Leviticus every single day and it's okay. You can read Leviticus. That's not a bad idea. I'm not trying to like say reading scriptures is an unwise solution, but it absolutely needs technical support to make it happen if your people are either in that kind of crisis mode or a stress avoidance posture. So that all makes sense. Yes, that's helpful. I appreciated not just thinking about individuals, but you're thinking about your organization mm -hmm. as a whole and where you might plot some points in terms of that graph with them. That's helpful. Yeah. And also to connect this to the liminal age that we have been defining and trying to outline here. It's not just our church that our people in our church are experiencing. In their respective jobs, in their family worlds, they are all in an environment where you know, everybody's trying to put into place and practice existing technical solutions for things that don't fit the landscape that they're in. And so they're experiencing disappointment in those areas as well. And that affects them even as they're in the church. And so this is actually an opportunity, if you're a leader, to be able to take your people through a way of understanding the environment they're in as a thermostat 
and to understand like, hey, this is unsatisfying and here's why. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, here's what we do with that now. So it kind of helps with, again, putting handholds on things and persuading people of the good that adaptive change can bring. Yeah. Um, even if it feels intimidating. Yeah. It's interesting. So we've kind of thought about this individually and then you've thought about it with an organization. But if we think about how this applies to our entire culture. Oh, yeah. I mean, we're in the midst of a massive culture war that feels like it's at code red. Maybe at time was at code yellow or even orange, but we feel like we're at code red right now. And you wonder if some of that is the whole entire culture going above the limit of tolerance. Like we're all in the fetal position, so mm. to speak. Yes. And maybe you could even say this, everyone's trying to find technical solutions to the problems of the culture war so that they don't have to embrace adaptive change. Yeah. And uh, I'm, I'm not saying that's the only thing that's going on, but it definitely seems like that is part of what's going on because to embrace adaptive change in the midst of a culture war is incredibly, incredibly stressful. Oh, yeah. I mean, what politician gets elected on the platform of, hey, everybody, we're going to make some changes to the tax code that's going to make this a little bit more simple, but it's going to cost us something. No politician <laughs> gets elected by telling their constituents that this is going to be hard and actually it's going to cost you something. No, no. They get elected because they said, I'm going to do this for you so that you do not have to. Yeah. Yeah. So you think about one place we can flush this out and see if it fits. So you think about black Americans and the chronic accumulation of mm. discrimination and bias over time. And then now we're at a place in our society where things are on camera. When discrimination happens, it's out there. You can't hide it. I mean, one of my friends is like, when something happens and it's caught on camera, he feels a need to go, look, there it is. It's real, you know? Yeah. And so there's a sense of this disequilibrium that they've felt for long periods of time. And they've been forced to adapt yeah, because of all these things that were stacked up against them. So for instance, we've heard over and over black families have to give their sons, especially the talk about what it means to be black in America. Mm -hmm. And in that, there is a legitimate need for technical solutions that would provide relief and margin Absolutely. to black Americans. But just to kind of spin it on its head, it, it's interesting because one of those technical solutions that has been thrown out there is this idea of defund the police. Mm. And yet, even with that, the vast majority of black families are not asking for that. Mm. So who is? Well, it seems like it's a handful of, of activists, primarily progressive, primarily white, who want to maybe avoid their own adaptive change in the situation. Instead of thinking about how they might need to adapt and change, let's force someone else to do it. And obviously that's a complicated conversation, but I do think that this technical first adaptive change is at play in this conversation. Yeah, that's a good example, man, because I don't think there's anybody who doesn't want the 
average black American to be walking around and not have to fear police. Absolutely. Okay. That should not be necessary. It is wicked and unjust that it is a reality and that moms and dads have to have that conversation with their sons. It's terrible. We need a solution to that. Something that systemic is, of course, it has to be a combined technical and adaptive problem, right? Defund the police as a solution, as a technical solution, says we just need to shift funds to social services, and that's going to change it. The reason why that's not an adaptive enough of a problem is because it doesn't even deal with why there are issues in police departments existing. And one of those reasons is a really terrible lack of adequate compensation for what we're asking police officers to do. The reason for that is because property taxes pay for their salaries. And so the worst scenario is the lower the property values, the lower the revenue that a given police department has to pay salaries, they need outside help. But you know what? For the white liberal progressive, typically, who lives in a more comfortable, either urban hipster area or in a suburban affluent context, that requires no additional cost from them. What would require the additional cost is asking the question of like, is there a way for neighboring districts and counties to subsidize that for the good of the entire region? Like how can we get out of the stovepiping tax structure that we're in? And that, that's going to require some places to pay more mm. for the same thing or to get less for what they're paying one way or another. Nobody wants to vote for that. That would be an adaptive solution. <laughs> the more meta we go with some of these illustrations, the more clearly complex it gets. But we kind of just beat up on you know white progressives a little bit. Let's talk about the <laughs> MAGA phenomenon too, right? Let's be some equal opportunity offenders here. Absolutely, right? And what we really want everybody to hear in both of these, before I go to the second one, is these are valid problems. They're real problems. They're not fantasies. They're not made up by the people who say that they're a problem. They're real problems deserving real technical and adaptive solutions. But until we are able to distinguish what pieces are which, technical versus adaptive, we're going to be just spinning and it's not going to be helpful. And so on the complaints from the political right that we've been hearing over the last several years that got Donald Trump elected in a lot of ways in the first place is that they're experiencing their own disequilibrium especially more rural areas of the country, that is the result of a combined loss that takes shape from economic stagnation, that is a result itself of globalization and a tech revival that rural areas have largely been left behind and hit particularly hard. As we've talked about in previous episodes too, the erosion of institutions means that there aren't the same anchors that there used to be, especially for young men who mm. used to depend on some of those jobs that have vacated entire regions. Like the opioid epidemic is a mm. symptom of this. It's a cry for help in a lot of ways. Mm. But also you see a loss of cultural influence that's amplified very disproportionately by echo chambers of media and Hollywood. Even as our media has become more decentralized, we are now exposed to more voices that disagree with us. So there is an experience of a loss of power that is valid. It may not be proportionate. That's an, a logical, rational argument you can have to what degree. But if you heard in President Trump's campaign slogan, MAGA, make America great again, just the great again part is an almost explicit desire to avoid the necessity of adaptive change. 
We want to go back to a time or we want the technical circumstances of our lives and of society, the way it was ordered, to be such that we don't need to do any adaptive change. We don't want to have to do the government retraining from coal mining toward, you know, circuit production and fabrication. I'm not saying that that's an easy decision to make. I'm saying that there is embedded in that slogan a plea for lowering our disequilibrium below the limit of tolerance. And that experience is valid. And you hear this yeah. like, what did people want from Trump? What they like and saw in him was somebody who would fight for them. An authority outside of them who would make the changes, not the people with the problem, right? <laughs> so once again, everything I'm describing is a perfect storm. Trump being elected was a perfect storm of promising technical solutions to people who felt way beyond their limit of tolerance and saying, you don't need to go through any adaptive change. I got it, which is why I don't care whether we're talking about the left or the right. Populism is never sustainable because hmm. that's what that is. When you zoom out to the level of like national politics or even local politics, when a politician is promising adaptive satisfaction and results with merely or only technical change, that's populism. It's not a political strategy or approach that is in any way actionable or effective or based in reality. Wow. It's actually just manipulating and shifting people's frustration in a less productive direction. That's fascinating to think about. So true. Because we're talking about this, I'm like, who could blame a politician for that, right? Like, that's a hard sell. It's hard. It's so much easier to just promise this technical solution is going to provide the satisfaction that you're looking for, right? And unfortunately, this is where like, John, if I'm totally honest, the liminal age that we're in, I'm really not sure how to get out of it as a country or even just globally in a lot of ways, because we often will only accept adaptive change after we have tried every single technical alternative first and found it wanting, or we are forced to. I really think that this is a huge reason why we saw the kind of growth across the board, cultural, social, economic growth post-World War II, because the entire country, the United States, our entire country was mobilized toward and had to adaptively change in order to meet the needs and the demands of a world war. It required that much of us to put aside ourselves and to accept the sacrifice that that would require. It worries me. How do we pursue that kind of growth without being forced to? How do we pursue that kind of adaptive change and leadership without having that forced on us? Hmm. Yeah, well, it does seem like you have to make a decision and part of the adapting is you have to be willing to adapt even when everyone else doesn't and wants technical mm. solutions. You know, you have to be yeah. willing to say, I see what's going on here and I'm going to adapt even if everyone else doesn't. I mean, I'm sure there's ways that we could tie this in with the gospel and there's ways that we could think about this in terms of our relationship with Jesus. Have you thought about that at all and connected that to the book at all? Well, it's funny, as we're talking about this earlier today, I was doing sermon prep for a series on James. And one of the really, like, punches in the face in my own prep for this sermon series has been the realization that the period James is writing in is right after Stephen was stoned 
Mm-hmm. And the disciples in Acts chapter 7 are kind of basically scattered to the four winds. And so there's this persecution that is happening from the same Jewish authorities that they had looked up to and followed as leaders for their entire lives up to this point. And now these new Jewish Christians are being scattered by persecution and by their own kind of liminal age that they are on the front end of. James is writing to them and basically saying, do not be tossed to and fro by the winds of change. Do not accept the paradigms of the people who are persecuting you and respond in kind. Ours is a strange community. This is not going to be the same. We're going to do this differently because of the cross, right? So like even when he opens the letter, right, he says, you know, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kind, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. In other words, the disequilibrium that you experience, God uses it. This is not just a cold graph of like, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. God actively is on the other end of that faith who is fueling and nourishing and strengthening you in and through it. And he says, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be, you know, this translation says perfect, but mature is more accurate and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, seek God in the midst of this and allow his love and his faithfulness to you to empower your endurance in the midst of this and your steadfastness such that it changes the way that you see the trial and the disequilibrium. Instead of something to be avoided, it is an opportunity that God promises to use for your good and your growth, right? And so he he keeps filling this out in verse five. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without approach and it will be given him. Let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. The way that he's using doubt here is not the kind of like, I doubt in my belief and in my faith. I'm struggling and wrestling intellectually or existentially or otherwise. So what does he mean then? The double-mindedness that he's describing here is one that is asking for the maturity and wisdom he just got done talking about, but without the suffering. What he's saying is don't doubt God's goodness in giving the disequilibrium. It is not evidence of his disfavor. It is actually evidence of his love. Hebrews, those whom he loves, he disciplines. And what this does is it transforms and changes the disequilibrium that we're going through. And if you're a leader of anyone, we have to have that mindset switch where we apply that to ourselves first. We have to see the leadership challenges that we're facing and leading in a liminal age and understand that the challenges that we're facing are actually good things that God gives for our growth and not necessarily Rocky Mountains. Like the Rocky Mountains are beautiful, man. They're a gift. They're not a roadblock. Yes, they're a barrier, not primarily and not ultimately, right? And so like it requires us to see that differently because that's, I mean, that's how God himself sees it, right? When Hebrews chapter two, when it's talking about Jesus and he says, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation mature through suffering. Mm, Wow. Right. Jesus' own path toward his own maturity was complete, Hebrews says, by his suffering in obedience. In other words, All of us have been above that limit of tolerance. Our disequilibrium has been high. Both our rest and our work done 
through the lens of wisdom, the wisdom to see the difference between technical and adaptive problems and to see that the problems themselves and the suffering and the disequilibrium we're experiencing, that all of those things are opportunities that God uses to grow us, we're going to approach leadership completely differently. Yeah, absolutely. And we won't be as tempted to sink into that posture of stress and work avoidance, but actually be used by God and allow him to keep us in that productive range of distress and to grow us, to prune us, as he says in John 15. Because when we bear fruit, he prunes those vines that bear fruit so that more fruit may grow. This is actually God being good to us in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. And it's so helpful just to be reminded, like God's in that process. I mean, obviously above that line where we're in the fetal position, it's not a healthy place to be. It's yeah. a challenging place to be. We, we want to be in a healthier place, but we tend to respond by wanting no ambiguity, no suffering, no stress. Mm. And it's really in that place of some suffering, some stress, some challenges that we become different people, not just any people, but we become more like Christ, like you said. And so there's a lot of room there, I think, for us to trust that process, that God's mm. in the process. Absolutely. So. Brad, that's really helpful. Um, thank you for introducing that framework. Next time, we're going to go a little bit deeper and talk about what happens when we start to implement this framework of understanding adaptive change versus technical solutions. So we're looking forward to that conversation, and we'll see you next time. All right. Thanks. See you then. Thank you for listening. If you found this episode helpful, text it to a friend. Please take a minute and rate this podcast. Leaving a review helps other people find us and connect. You can send us questions or feedback by emailing us at posteverythingpod at gmail.com. Thank you.